Hey, storytellers, this is your host, Yin Chang. Please look out for an additional podcast episode releasing this week that covers updates from my end about the pandemic and how it's been impacting us. Thank you for understanding about the delay with the release of this episode, and we'll continue with the usual format for this one. If you've been enjoying our show and haven't yet hit the subscribe button and submitted a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to do so. Not only do I love reading your reviews, but your reviews also give new listeners a glimpse of what to expect from our episodes. Thank you to each and every one of you for taking the time, and thank you to those of you who already left a review. On that note, I want to shout out Noelle Dawn, who wrote us a review that said, For most of my life, I've written poems, shorts, and the first few chapters of novels. I never took my writing seriously before. It was just a way to express a story or my emotions. Recently, I decided that I would like to pursue writing as a career, then immediately realized how lost I was. I felt completely alone and unprepared, but this podcast changed that for me. 88 Cups of Tea revealed to me an amazing community that I wouldn't have found otherwise, as well as other resources that I can seek out to improve myself and my craft. Every day I listen to the podcast to school, and every day I feel more prepared and worthy of your stories. Next year, I'll be moving from the West Coast to the East Coast to study writing at a college. But as long as I have this podcast, I know I won't be alone. I cannot recommend 88 Cups of Tea enough. Wow, I am so proud of you for pursuing your dreams and being so courageous. Thank you so much for being a part of our community, for taking the time to write such a heartfelt and thoughtful review. We are over the moon happy to have you here with us and grateful to have someone like you too in our community. Thanks so much again for your support and good luck with everything. For today's episode, there wasn't as much editing done for this one, and I hope you'll enjoy the transparency and raw quality of the conversation. An important note to make, we recorded this conversation back in mid-February, so though we do not mention any timely events or what's been happening during the coronavirus, the content itself is timeless and truly eye-opening and inspiring. This is hands down one of my favorite conversations I've had in nearly 200 podcast episodes. This guest is one of the kindest and most genuine people I've truly enjoyed chatting with. Without further ado, we have award-winning author Akemi Don Bowman, the author of Starfish, Summer Bird Blue, and her latest novel, Harley in the Sky, that just released on March 10th. It's been particularly hard on our writing and book community, so please show support however you can, and if you are able to, order a copy to add to your to-be-read list. Akemi is also a Ravenclaw and Star Wars enthusiast who served in the U.S. Navy for five years and has a bachelor's in social sciences from UNLV. We kick off our conversation discussing her career path from joining the Navy to falling back in love with writing and ultimately pursuing storytelling full-time as a published author. We discuss how she developed the perseverance to grapple with all the rejections that come along with the querying process and continue on to have a very honest conversation about her mental health, finding the right support system, and how to be a great ally for others. We then dive into how she juggles being the best mom she can to her children, showing up as a partner to her significant other, and being a writer while maintaining a healthy mental state by prioritizing what's most important to her, along with giving herself permission to slow down and take breaks, and cutting out toxic relationships both in person and online. Further into our conversation, she shares how leaning into her emotions helps her craft such beautiful and immersive stories, 
how her writing voice and character development has changed throughout her career and her experiences being an author with multiple published novels. And later we get into some real talk about book sales, contracts, and self-marketing. We wrap up the conversation with a small but powerful step you can take to reach your writing goals. Akemi created an exclusive writing prompt just for you, and you can download this bonus content over at her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash Akemi dash Dawn dash Bowman. Be sure to catch her Instagram story takeover at instagram.com slash 88cupsoftea. She recorded behind the scenes videos of her life juggling writing and her children, and we get a sneak peek of her writing space. All right, now let's jump right in. Hey everyone, I am so excited to have Akemi Dawn Bowman with us today. Akemi, hello darling, how are you all the way from Scotland making time for us? I'm so excited about this. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for having me. We're having a little bit of pre-chat before we started the interview. And I was so excited to let you know that a lot of people in our community are so excited about you and your work. They say that you write beautifully and you've had quite a lot of requests to have you on the podcast. So I'm so happy this is finally happening. And it's really cool too, because we recently had Adeline Grace's podcast release uh, several weeks ago. And by the time your episode releases, I would say it would be like about a month and a half ago. Uh, she mentioned that you were one of her first critique partners, one of her first writing buddies, and that you were so generous and just so lovely and so kind. So I, I'm just hearing oh. the best things about you from everybody. So this is really exciting to have you on the show. Um, so why don't we just kick it off with what Thank we you. usually start off with is how you first fell in love with storytelling. Oh my gosh. Since, since forever ago, I think, um, I remember being like a really little kid and I know probably everybody's like, Oh yeah, since I was a little kid, but genuinely I used to get like construction paper and staple it together and then just be writing like stories. And, um, and they were pretty terrible. I think the really early ones, it was basically Lion King fan fiction, but I didn't know, (laughs) I didn't know what fan fiction was back then, but that's pretty much what it was. It would just be like a Disney movie and then my own kind of like characters in it. So, um, yeah. And I just remember, I just like, I loved it. I was obsessed with it. I would just sit there every single day, just coming up with new ideas. And I mean, they were terrible, but to me, you know, that was just, it was like an outlet. It was like a creative outlet that I just loved so much. This is amazing to hear a fellow lover of the Lion King franchise. So then moving forward, how then did you segue into realizing you, you wanted to take it a little bit more seriously. And before we get there, I'm going to let you know, I got a chance to read your post that you wrote about your publishing journey. And I saw the part about you going to the Navy and there was uh, some talk about falling in and out of love with writing. So I would love to touch on that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, It's kind of complicated. So I've, I've struggled with my mental health for genuinely like as long as I can remember um, at a young age. I've got anxiety. I've kind of struggled with depression and all these different things. And when I was basically trying to figure out what I was going to do after high school, I didn't really have like a set plan, but I knew I just wanted to get away. Like kind of like my home life situation. I just wanted to go somewhere else. You know, that's not at always an option for people like financially and things like that. So I was kind of like in a bit of a hole. And, um, 
a recruiter happened to call my house one day. I don't even know how he got my number. And he was basically like, do you want to come down and talk about joining the Navy? And because of my anxiety, I didn't know how to say no. And oh. like, genuinely, and, I, and, and I'm not trying to like, you know, say terrible thing, I'm not saying anything terrible about it, but I had no intention of joining and I just didn't know how to say no. And then <gasps> flash forward a few months later and I was literally going to boot camp thinking, what am I doing? Like, um, and at one point I did actually try to get out of it like before I had shipped off and I told, I, I plucked up the courage and I was like, um, cause I told my parents, I was like, I don't want to join. They're like, well, then you need to call yourself. And I was like, oh, this is my worst nightmare. And, um, and so I managed to tell him and I was like, I really don't think this is for me. I, you know, I want to go to university. And he was like, well, if you're going to quit and disappoint us, you have to go talk to my boss. And his boss looked and sounded like Mr. Rogers. I'm not even exaggerating. <laughs> And if you can imagine having to say no to Mr. Rogers as he's telling you that you're, you're disappointing him, it was like my worst nightmare. Oh my and um, and so I basically I just couldn't do it. And then I was like, yeah, I guess I'll just join. And um, yeah, and I ended up joining. And you know, there was like I think for me it was a position. Um, there are benefits to having. Obviously, you get free medical care. Um, they pay for university and stuff. And and for me, it forced me into independence at like very, very quickly and immediately. Um, mm. But it, in a way that it was actually probably what I really, really needed, something that made me very independent. But it obviously wasn't where my heart was. It wasn't what I wanted to be doing. So that was like very difficult. And again, you know, I have, you know, mental health things anyway. And so kind of struggling through that, that was like really hard. And so it, and it was hard to kind of get back into like, it's almost like I forgot how much I loved writing because I was yeah. in such a dark place that it was just nothing was giving me joy. Um, and it was just, it was kind of tough. And uh, I was in for five years and sort of towards the end of it, uh, I was on a deployment and I don't know what it was, but something kicked into my head that I was like, do you know what? I really miss this. I really miss just writing something. And I, I just started writing again out of nowhere. Um, and it was weirdly, it was actually probably around the time that I did see a therapist. So maybe there was a connection there that I hadn't actually realized until literally this moment <laughs> when I'm telling you this, but that could have had like a really, um, uh, kind of positive impact on it. But yeah, so I, I started writing again and just kind of fell in love with it all over. And I remembered how much, um, yeah, how happy it made me and kind of, it was something for me to do. It kept my mind off things. And, uh, and so I wrote like a really terrible book, tried to get an agent and that didn't go so well. <laughs> and that was, uh, uh, wrote like three more after that. And then, you know, uh, I think book number four was the one that got picked up, but I, I was rejected over like 700 times as well, like throughout that process. I mean, it was yeah. so, so many no's. Um, but I think I'm, I've always been kind of stubborn and I think I was just like, it's okay if this one didn't work out, I'll work on the next book. And I just had that kind of mentality of like, I'll just write the next thing and the next thing. And Yeah. Okay, I can't help but wonder because going to the Navy, I feel like that also develops a sense of doggedness in a really positive way. I mean, from what I imagine. Yeah. So is that something that you felt like was always innate for you or you developed throughout your time in the Navy being because I know I read like, you know, you mentioned you were deployed and in your post, you mentioned it was deployment in the Middle East specifically. So do you think yeah. that also helped to shape that quote unquote stubborn side, which I see as a positive trait as in being very persistent in going after what it is that you want to make happen? Yeah, I think that I've always been like a stubborn person, probably like some people don't think that's a great thing. But um, I think I always have and I've I've always just been that way. Like if I 
you know, think something's right or wrong, or if I'm, you know, set my mind to something, I've always been very much like, no, I have to finish this. And and part of that, even with like a video game, not to like slightly get off topic, but like, you know, you have like, um, goals or like collection things, yes. you get badges. I'm the kind of person, if I get a video game, like you will not see me for like three and a half months. <laughs> I need to get every single badge, and which is not always a good thing. So I have to be very good about like managing, like what I allow myself to like open the door to, you know what I mean? And so I've always kind of had that, but I think the military sort of, maybe fine tune it in like a slightly more mature way. I guess you could, you could say, cause it is, you do grow up really fast. You're like an adult immediately. And I mean, I know everybody's an adult when they turn 18 technically, but I think with the military, I mean, you are on your own, you are, you know, in charge of your own, like kind of bank accounts and everything. It's just, you're just on your own. You're, you're figuring it out. And, um, yeah. And, and so I think, and, and it's a lot more, I don't want to say cutthroat. That might be the wrong word, but it's a lot like they don't have time for nonsense. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So, if you're somebody who's like, I don't know, can't get it together, you get yelled at. So you have to get it together. You don't have a choice. And they kind of like drill that into you, like even in, in basic training and stuff like, uh, yeah. So I, uh, so I think, yeah. So maybe just like a more kind of pushed you out the door a bit rougher. <laughs> I cannot help but wonder what was it like being one of the few females in the army, in the Navy? And like, how much do you think that impacted you and the way you see the world and your perspective, because that directly would affect how you then tell stories. It, it's a really, I think it's a really tricky one. Cause I didn't necessarily always have the best experiences um, with stuff like that. There was a, just some kind of weird things that happened. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Obviously there's nice people everywhere. Just like there's like, you know, rotten people everywhere. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to say like everybody in the Navy was a horrible person. That's not what I'm saying. Right. But there was definitely instances where you just felt like people didn't have your back in the same way. And it was a lot more like, it's like a boy's world, boy's club. And um, even like, I remember something super weird happening where um, I was in the barracks and it was like nighttime. I had already gone to sleep basically. And there was like a, the way that the roommates were, you had a shared bathroom. Right. Yeah. And I guess there was a leak in the bathroom. And so whoever was like monitoring the, the rooms at nighttime saw the leak and knocked on my door and I was sleeping. So I didn't hear it. And they went to my roommate's door and she was like, Oh, she's asleep. Do you want to come through the bathroom and check the leak? And he was like, no, no, it's fine. We'll just get it tomorrow. And he left and got the master key and came back and just came into my room. And I what? just like woke woke up to him just standing there. And it was super creepy and like kind of like, yeah, obviously like really unnerving for me because I was only like 18 at the time. Anybody would feel so unnerved. Yeah, anybody. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he was kind of like, oh, there was a leak. Um, oh, we'll come back after the weekend and then just left. And I remember what? I was like, this freaked me out. And I, I moved out. I wasn't even getting paid um, for because they give you an allotment for uh, rental. And I wasn't getting it at the time because I was too young. So I was supposed to be living in the barracks, but I couldn't deal with it. I was like, I can't live here anymore. So I moved out and I was just paying out of pocket, uh, which is a lot because that's like your whole paycheck pretty much. And somebody had found out at some point that I was like basically like living paycheck to paycheck because of this rent. And they were like, you need to be getting back pay for that. That's not right. And he was like trying to help me route up the chain of command to, to basically say like I felt unsafe. So I had to move out. And it basically reached kind of like the head of of my command and there was a higher up person. I won't like name names or anything. Right. Um, and she was, she was a, a woman and she oh. basically pulled me into her office and was like, I'm not sending this any further. Like you <sighs> need to understand the way the Navy works. Um, if you can't handle this, maybe I should just send you to live on a ship for a few months. And like, basically like, sort what of like, the fuck are yeah, you like, serious? And it, was, it just made me so uncomfortable. And, and like, she was basically trying to imply that like she had to 
deal with that to get to where she is so that I shouldn't be complaining. And I remember at the time being like, just like too, I guess, inexperienced or whatever it was that I didn't know how to speak up for myself. So I just like froze up and was like, oh yeah, right. Okay. Um, and let it go. And like now years later, when I look back and I'm like, that was wrong on so many levels. And like, I wish I had had it in me to like call that out, but I just, I didn't at the time, but it is horrendously wrong. And I feel like, you know, if you're somebody who is in the minority of something, so if you're, you know, like, uh, mostly men around you or something and you're a woman or whatever the case may be, right? Yeah. Like you have more of a responsibility when you get to a position of power, like you should be using that to help other people not make them feel like they have to go pay their dues like you did. Like, I just think that's wrong on so many levels. Um, so yeah, so there, there was things like that that happened that I remember just kind of like left a bit of an uncomfortable taste. I remember being in the Middle East and we got pulled over. Weirdly, see, I'm, um, I, I met my husband when I was in the Middle East and, uh, he was in the Royal Air Force. So he's British. Um, and when we were out there, like they pulled all the girls aside and were like, just stay away from the British people. They're only after one thing, like make sure you conduct yourselves. And I remember I was just like, did the boys get pulled aside? <laughs> yeah, like, that's so. Like there was a meeting. I was like, "What is this?" And I remember them being. And then weirdly, I I met a Brit and then married him. So, <laughs> but yeah, weird things like that. I have chills everywhere. Then with your your writing and for the characters that you create that are female identifying, do you feel like that created a larger gateway for I don't know if empathy or just awareness in how women are treated in this world and how they are forced to approach and to navigate the world? Yeah, I think it definitely has probably had an effect, even subconsciously. Um, I think one of the big things is like I have like made a big point and not even like intentionally, I think it honestly was subconscious, but like to put um, like good role models in the books, almost like there's like, there's always a character and it's a pattern in all of my books. There's always somebody who's like older, who is like a role model who's almost like looking out for like the nonsense. Do you know what I mean? And I think, and that probably comes from a place where I didn't feel like I had that. Yes. What I want to also unpack is when you were talking about the dark times and for me, it's just so important for those listening in to feel less lonely as possible to know that they may not be the only ones going through what they're going through. Um, Mm -hmm. And if culturally, right. When Mm -hmm. I was younger and, you know, like there was a guidance counselor who mentioned to my mom at the time when I was in middle school that I should see it. I need to see a therapist basically because, uh, something really, uh, like really, um, uh, traumatic happened for me. Um, Mm -hmm. but then it was covered up by, um, I guess you could say cultural pride, like just worried about losing face. Um, and are you aware of the meaning of losing face? Yes. Okay. Yes. And for listeners listening in who are not aware a lot of Asian cultures, there's a saying, it's like losing face. Um, and in Chinese, it's like diolian. And that means like, you know, you just, oh, it's almost like not wanting to bring dishonor to the family. So yeah. there was a stigma, especially back then. And this is like, oh gosh, like 20 years ago. I'm definitely dating myself right now, but like 20 <laughs> years ago, forget about even hearing the word mental illness. Like, you know, we see like white people in the, those movies being locked up. Like, what is that? <laughs> yeah. that? That doesn't happen in our culture. You just suck it up and move on. Like, yeah, I know that when my mom was brought in, I think she just was then we kind of talked about what was going through her mind back then. And now I understand more. She was so afraid because she married my dad, who's very 
traditional Taiwanese, but she was so afraid of what crap she's going to get from basically his side of the family. If, you know, anything were to get out about like, if I saw a therapist, it, it was like a reflection of her as a mother. Like she, yeah. she was like, Oh my God, worried as in like, Oh gosh, like I can't even like do one thing right. Which is like, take care of my daughter, even though she's like a badass businesswoman and like running the corporation with my dad that they created together. But then she still felt that stress and that pressure from the in-laws who are super, super, super traditional. Had there been no cultural expectations, I likely would have gotten the help needed at the time in middle school and would have been a lot uh, healthier mentally, you know, like go uh, yeah. hand, better equipped to handle the other challenges that came my way during high school. Um, and then like, you know, maybe had healthier choices in life. So I think for me, it's more so you, okay. I'm, if I'm totally getting this wrong, I'm going to be mortified, but you are half Asian. Yeah, I am. Yeah. You're specifically half Japanese, yes? I say half Japanese because it's just easier than explaining it. But my, my so my dad's from Hawaii. He's born and raised for, for generations and generations. Um, and they're mostly Japanese, but they're Chinese and a few other things too. But oh. it's just easier, I think, to just say Japanese. And, and then your mom is? She's white. Um, they, they like to say Italian. <laughs> they're like half Italian-American, but they're very proud of that. But yeah, she's white. <laughs> okay, gotcha. All right. So it is your dad then. I don't know why I assumed it was your mom that was Asian and that your dad was a white one. I don't know why. And I, I think I just assumed from the last name. So Bowman, yeah, well, is that I think a lot of people, uh-huh. a lot of people yes. do assume that though, because um, like when I was growing up, I was like the only biracial kid I knew at my school. I mean, that was, I mean, I didn't know myself. That's a weird thing to say. I was the only biracial <laughs> kid at my school besides my siblings. Like there was just, there was nobody else. And when there was somebody that you saw, it was typically, it was like the mom was Asian and then the dad was white. Yes. Um, yeah. It was very, very uh, weird. And I remember even growing up, people used to be kind of funny about like, my dad as well being like, what? He's Asian? No, so, no but so Bowman is your husband's last name or your dad's last uh, Where's Bowman from? Uh, my husband's last name. Your husband's last name. So then why I shared my story with you about what I went through in middle school and not getting the help that I needed was because of a huge cultural issue. You know, again, when you were mentioning your blog post about the dark times, right? Was your family open to talking about the realities of anxiety, depression, dark times, and how to then move forward to get the help that you need. Because I know that finally I had learned the words to communicate with my mom now. And plus 20 years of her changing, she's now mm-hmm. like, girl, oh my gosh, therapy's amazing. Like, she's just like, oh, I'm like, what the, where the hell was this when I was like 20? Yeah. Oh, hello, it was a little too late. Uh, excuse me. And then, yeah. But, you know, I just wish it was reversed. But I'm like, you know, for you, did you find that that was a, almost like a similar kind of issue or was it just completely not that situation for you at all? Like nothing to do with cultural, nothing to do with stigmas. Yeah, I totally know what you mean. It was very, very similar. I think like for my family, it was weird too. Cause it was like both sides were just like, I think my, maybe my Asian side of the family was the ones who were like, don't talk about it. You just put on a smile. Don't shit. Cause we have, I think it's a cultural thing that was like, you're not supposed to complain. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yep. I don't know if you have that too, but that was like a really bad, like, put your head matter. down and keep doing the work through. Yeah. You keep it to yourself private. You don't talk about it. And, um, and that was just, uh, that was just the way it was. And I think maybe from my mom's side of the family, that was more of like a pride thing. It was like a bad reflection. Like if you said that you had something like, you know, like, I think, I think somebody in my family might've had, um, 
I think it was like ADHD or something. And like, that was like horrifying to everybody. They're like, oh, he's on medication. Like it was like this big, and it was like, seriously, come on. But it was, it was like, they took it as like, it was like, like a shame thing almost. Like it was like, it hurts their pride. Like that it's a reflection that they're not as good of a parent. So like, you know, whatever you had, you just had to be quiet. And also I think, um, and I don't, you know, I don't want to excuse it like, oh, it's a sign of the times. But I think it was obviously we've got stigmas that were even worse, you know, when I was growing up. Um, and it, it was like, it was almost like, uh, like you're faking it or you just aren't getting sunshine and water and exercise. Like that was a big, that was like, like when I, if I was like depressed, they'd be like, go outside, get some fresh air, like stop being dramatic. So you basically absorbed and observed how your families spoke and how your families reacted to shame. So is this something that you even had, were you able to share with them? Like, hey, mom and dad, I think I might be struggling with this, this and this. Oh, I was very vocal about it. I was, um, yeah, I, I tried very hard to get, um, you know, them to understand, you know, like, I don't want to like, I'm not trying to criticize, like, I love my family, don't get me wrong. And like, we're in a much better place today than we ever were. But when I was growing up, and I was in a bit of a like a toxic environment, anyway, it wasn't a very healthy kind of like, um, I don't want to say childhood in general, because, you know, but you know, it wasn't the, the best kind of, um, I guess, mental space to be in for me. Right. And um, whenever I would try to bring it up, it would be more like, a, like, oh, my gosh, you again being dramatic, like, mm-hmm. almost like a mocking, like almost like a laughter, like, oh, like this again, like, mm-hmm. she's always acting like this. Um, and I'd be telling them like some very like serious stuff, like, you know, about, um, I mean, nowadays, we have the term suicidal ideation, like, that wasn't something that I knew what that was called. But that was what I was going through from like the age of 11, which is like shocking to me because now I'm grown up and I've got my own kids. And I think like, who not listen? Like if you're 11 year olds coming to you saying like this stuff, like why would you not listen? But yes, you know, yeah, again, you can't go back and change it. So, but yeah, it was, so it was very difficult for me. And I think very isolating. And I think after, you know, if somebody like laughs at you enough times or tells you you're making it up or tells you you're exaggerating, you do start to internalize that. And you do start to think, well, maybe I am just being overly, maybe I am just, you know, like acting too much or, you know, being too dramatic. Um, and it, and you almost get, it almost turns the other way where like, you're almost embarrassed to then talk about it again. So I talked about it a lot when I was growing up and then something clicked in and I was like, I can't tell anybody this, it's not safe. And I just shut down and like, did not talk about it. Um, and, you know, and again, ended up joining the Navy and, and, and things like that. And it kind of just, it kind of just spiraled for a while. And then I don't know if I just was like, disassociating or what, but it was like, I was just surviving. Basically I was just doing whatever I needed to, to get through that time period. Um, until I eventually ended up in therapy and, and that was like very, very helpful for me, but yeah, yeah, it it was definitely difficult. My heart, first of all, hurts to even hear what you had to go through. And I'm very sorry. I know that we are fast forwarding now, but even that you had to go through that, I'm really sorry that you did. I do want to share with you that a lot of our listeners, a lot of them are parents, new parents, some have newborns, some have children who are like in their teens. I do think it's so important to share these stories because We all are storytellers. That's what this podcast is, I guess you could say, revolved around or there's that through line, that thread. But even deeper than that, we're all human beings and we all have these 
various different real life experiences and and what's happened to us that makes us so different and distinct with our stories and our voices you know whether that was being silenced and then now like being you know finding our voice again so it's because of everything you've been through i think it's allowed you to be the best parent that anyone could ever ask for and your kids are really lucky to have you oh thanks that that means a lot i, I it's it's a really important thing cuz like look i mean real talk, right? Like no, nobody knows what the perfect mix is to be the perfect parent. Like nobody knows that. Right. And like, you just have to try your best. And the thing is though, is that some people fail at that. Some people don't have, you know, the empathy or the understanding or the willingness even, which is kind of a key one to kind of be the parent that their child needs. Um, not just a parent that they think is the best parent, but literally yes. the one that their kid needs. And the thing is like, even if you get it wrong, cause like some people are going to get things wrong, some worse than others. Right. If your kid comes to you and is like, look, this is hurting me, like you, you have to just listen. Like if you just listen, you can still make it better. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not the end just because you messed up for the first five years. If your kid comes to you and is like, you know, you're making, you're stressing me out. You're giving me anxiety or like, you know, they won't have the language for that. But do you know what I mean? Like if they're coming and saying like, you know, this is upsetting or if you can tell that there's something going on, like just like just try to be the parent that they need and just love them. I mean, that's, that's like really, really the most important thing that unfortunately, like a lot of parents, they're not like that. And that's really, really hard for kids. You said everything spot on. It's just letting your kids know you have their back and that no Mm -hmm. matter what, you will always believe them. I want to thank you for such a heartfelt, transparent conversation since we first picked up. Oh yeah, of course. I'm definitely one of those who just crave for these deeper meaning, more meaningful conversations because I think it really impacts us. And no matter what, it bleeds through to our storytelling too. We can even teach people how to be better parents, even through our stories. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. You are, you're teaching people empathy in a way. And and I think, and and that's the kind of thing, like, you know, things will happen to you. uh, Like, and unfortunately some, you know, worse than others, some more severe, um, it it creates a fire, right? Yeah. Some people might call it like a rage. And the thing is to make sure that it doesn't become a rage that affects you negatively. Do you know what I mean? If you can kind of put that into something that helps you heal, it's like, there's like a saying that like, you know, whenever you're surrounded by darkness, like the challenge is to make sure that your heart doesn't go dark and it is really difficult. Sometimes it is, and I'm not going to say it isn't, but that's the challenge because you need to be able to come out of that and use that fire for good, like for yourself to heal and, and to, you know, yeah. Dude, a thousand percent. Oh my God. I'm like, I am feeling you. I'm like, why are you not in New York hanging out with me? Okay. (laughs) So I want to now segue into then you where you are right now today. I want to know what is right now something that is the most challenging thing that you are going through. It could be storytelling related. It could be life related. It could be anything. What what are the challenges right now that you are going through that you're and what if we can if you even have figured out even steps to even try to push through those circumstances or those challenges i want to hear about that too so where are you at right now oh gosh that's such a loaded question like where am i not at i feel like i'm all <laughs> over the place i mean um i'm obviously i've been on like back to back deadlines. So I'm Mm -hmm. juggling like a lot of like work and writing. I think right now I'm, I'm kind of trying to balance like, um, a good mental health space so that I can be the best, you know, uh, mom and partner and and writer that I can. And, and I've had to limit stuff. Like I'm, I'm off Twitter. I quit Twitter. Uh, what was it like back in like August or September or something like that? I just, I had to like cold Turkey. I can't do it anymore. Cause it was, 
affecting me in a way for my mental health that I, I was not writing as well as I could. I wasn't yes. as happy as I, you know, felt like, you know, I could be. And it just, I think right now my challenge is re- like literally prioritizing, like what is important, you know, what's necessary, like a necessary evil. Um, and what can I kind of get away with, like not doing anymore. And, uh, yeah. Okay. I so sort of- <laughs> can I crack it open a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. Because again, I'm going to reference to our listeners. Some that I've met are parents and they also have full-time jobs. They also are expected to come back and help cook, watch the kids, make sure the significant other's okay and all of that stuff, but also expected to crank out work as well. There's others as well who are recently graduated school, moved to a new place and definitely both of those kinds of listeners that I know their stories personally and what they've shared with the community struggle with mental health. Yeah. And it's to the point where it really stops them from creating and they're not really sure how to sometimes get back in. So if there's anything that you can share step-by-steps that you have been doing, I know you shared like overall generally Mm -hmm. just now what you've been doing but if there's any details that we might be missing that could maybe even not tell them exactly what to do with their lives but it's like inspiration where they're like oh that's a great idea maybe i can try something similar yeah i mean i honestly i wish i had like an easier just like simple fix and be like this is what you can do to make everything better i honestly wish and i i will hold up my hands and say i am not the best person to like mimic how i do things see my husband works offshore right so half the time he's away and I've got the kids full time. I've got two little kids, a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and I'm by myself and I'm on deadline and I'm writing. So it's literally kids, kids, kids all day. And then trying to write in between while they're eating lunch, I'm like writing and stuffing a sandwich in my face and then they wow. go to bed and I'm I'm up till midnight writing. And I just, I, I'm like a workaholic, but I don't want to like um, kind of glorify that because I know that that's not healthy for everybody for sure. Um, so I'm not encouraging that. Um but that's how I have to get work done because I literally don't have any other option. I will say though, that cutting things out of my life that I feel like, uh, weren't helpful, like, um, certain parts of social media, for example, is time consuming number one. And number two, I started looking at it as like, is this, um, making me happy or is it not making happy? <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And then being like, how much time am I actually spending on something that is not making me happy? And if the answer was a lot, you know what I mean? Then I was like, I, well, I just don't need it then. And that, um, that's helped a lot. And I know that's tricky too, because for some people, you know, their, their whole social life's on, you know, social media. Um, so it's kind of like, it, it is, it's a juggling act. Cause it's like, what do you get rid of? That's, you know, not going to hurt you in other ways. Um, I will say though, that like, see, I'm on deadline right now. So which is why I'm working so much, but when, you know, I wasn't on quite this extreme of deadlines, like it is okay to take breaks and it's okay to slow down if you need it. And my editor's always been really, really great with saying, if I need more time to just say it, um, but like, if you're in a, you don't have to feel like you have to knock out 10,000 words a day at some ridiculous amount. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you only write 50 words a day, that's 50 more words than you had yesterday. You know what I mean? Just be proud of that. Like you're okay. And if you had to take like, you know, a week off because you're thinking about a scene in your head and you're, you're mulling it over, like that is still work. You're still being productive. Like you don't have to feel bad and, you know, don't get down on yourself because you're sitting thinking, well, I haven't knocked out thousands and thousands of words. Like that's okay. Like you're, you're on your own journey. And I think that's like a really big thing too, is like, don't 
keep looking at the lane next to you. Do you know what I mean? Like wh- whatever they're doing, whatever speed they're going at, you don't know all the ins and outs. Like, you know what I mean? Like for, for me, for example, if I'm knocking out tons of words, that's because I have to, because my kids, you know what I mean? Like I've got to get up in the morning and like, and I'm a mess. Like I'm exhausted. Like I don't feel good. So you don't want to copy me. You just focus on your lane. You know what I mean? Go at your own pace, do what makes you happy, healthy. Um, you know, what feels right. Like, and that's okay. Like you're not wrong for going at your own pace. Oh, I love that. When you mentioned about social media, cutting that out, yeah, just to have that healthier headspace, it just was draining too much from you. So you did what you needed to do. That's what you needed to let go. And you did it. And I love that you took action with that along the same lines. I think when we reach a certain age, we definitely feel like we have way less time. And a lot of times yeah. we do kind of have less time when we start to shift our lives, having choosing to have a family, choosing to have children, like who do you want to prioritize? What do you need to prioritize? So then also along the same lines of like cutting out social media, I do believe in also cutting out any like toxicity in terms of people in your life yes, and only surrounding yes. yourself with those who are just as driven, just as, um, uh, I guess you could say shares the same values as you, whatever that is you it's almost like wanting to make sure that the people that you do finally have time for it's not a time suck but rather it's very emotionally fulfilling for everyone involved yes like it recharges your battery yes 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 i've definitely you know moving back to new york like reconnected with some people where it's like oh wow that was very draining like I notice, and it's no judgment but it's like okay some people just don't want to grow but they'd rather fixate on gossiping and negativity and instead of pushing each other to or just like even allowing me to step in to be like oh my god that's amazing what's that goal that you're working on how can I help it's more so talking about somebody else's business and I have no time for that you know what I mean like I don't want to waste two three hours with toxicity when that could have been applied to other things you know whether it's quality times with my parents who are getting older with my siblings who are growing up fast or my girlfriend or my work so is that something that you've noticed yourself too because you have a five-year-old three-year-old like literally you're taking care of making sure the kids are surviving every day and like nothing happens to them like oh god another day they're alive amazing you know what i mean like that's what parenting is exactly oh shit like oh my god they're alive thank god best parent in the world number one yes so it's 100%. like, yeah, see, <laughs> exactly. So it's yeah. like, but then how do you have healthy friendships too, so that you still feel like you're connected to the world? Yeah, like, I, I think that's that's like really it's difficult. It is, but you do have to you figure out like who is healthy for you. And like, look, I'm not um, the kind of person I, I think I'm in the same boat as you. I'm not into the <laughs> gossiping, but no judgments, right? Like if somebody else, if that's their thing, there's lots of people in the world where that's their thing too. They can find each other and they'll be real happy, like nurturing <laughs> each other. You know what I mean? And like, so you just have to figure out like what, what fulfills you, like what feels good. Yeah. Um, do you know what I mean? Obviously people have hard times and I'm not saying like you're ditching somebody because they're having a rough time. Like that's not what that means. And sometimes people change and people grow. And sometimes the people who are like right for you at a certain time in your life, yeah. you know, or you were right for them, it doesn't always last forever. And sometimes that can be like really sad, but I think that you just, you know, we only have so many hours in the day. So fill it with the things that bring you like light and love, you know what I mean? Like the people that, that you feel good about putting work into the relationship because every relationship is work, even friendships. Do you know what I mean? But as long as the work you're putting in feels like I want to do this, I want to do this because I love this person. Like that's what it's about. And if you're not saying that, if, if you feel like people are just taking and taking and taking from you or just dragging you down or putting you in a space where you don't feel healthy, like 
it's okay to put up boundaries. And whether that boundary means you only see them once a month or you only send a Christmas card or a holiday card or whatever it is, or whether it's just cutting them out and saying like, do you know what? I don't think we're good for each other. Like, you know? Yes. Oh my God. Thank you for that. Can Okay. Round of applause, standing ovation. Sometimes people just need a verbal okay just to hear permission. Okay, I definitely want to get into your writing as well because everyone talks about how beautiful your writing is. Oh, thank you. I notice you're very humble and you this might make you shy, so I'm sorry. But so how are you so good at writing? <laughs> like where did you develop these skills? I don't mean to make you cringe, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Cause I'm sitting here thinking like, I don't, I don't it's probably garbage. Like, I don't know how oh, to no. answer that. But I mean, honestly, I think I just have like way too many emotions. Like I feel like that's <laughs> genuinely because here, and this is the truth too. And I know this is going to make me sound like such a terrible person, no. but like a writer, but like I was not a huge reader at the time when I started writing again. Like, um, when I was a kid read all the time, that was like all I love to do. But when I fell out of love with writing, I fell like out of love with re- it was like, all my joy just went. Um, and so when I started getting back into writing, I hadn't picked back up on reading yet. And, um, I'll be straight up honest. I didn't start reading again until after I got an agent. Like that's literally how long it took. Um, and it was just, I mean, now I read all the time. Now I love it again. I found my love for it. But, um, but yeah, I, I was in like a, like a swamp hole. <laughs> like what's a swamp hole? I don't know what a swamp hole is. <laughs> and yeah. And I think, and I was just feeling a lot and going through a lot. And I had all this history of me bottling things up. Like you were saying, like the fire and stuff yeah. and it needed somewhere to go. And I think I just feel a lot of things <laughs> and I just started coming out. And I know this, my books are kind of like, to me, um, I've likened them to, uh, uh, Horcruxes and stuff like from Harry Potter. It's like a piece of my soul, but it is, it's like a, a little abstract diary entry for me. Like they all are, they all have like a little part of me that I've morphed into something. So they're not, it's not a, you know, autobiography or anything like that, but it has parts of my history and parts of my experiences that I've put through. And it's, it's an outlet for me. It is, it is therapy. Um, and I think that's maybe why it comes across and people, I mean, other people call it beautiful. I, I'm just saying it's like a, it's like an emotional dump. <laughs> like it's just- to hear that you're able to write and churn out stories, even when you came back to reading a little later on in life, it's doable. So thank you for showing 100%. me that way. No, for oh, real. Yeah, like I'm really grateful I, to I, you I wish for that. more people knew that too, because I've, I remember reading like quotes and stuff and people saying like, um, good writers are, are readers first and stuff like that. And, and I feel like it kind of unfairly places this pressure of like, that if you're not reading or something, there's something wrong with you. Or yes. You're not like academic enough. It's not even true. I obviously wrote plenty without reading and, and like, and I do love reading, but like, again, the attention thing and, and t- prioritizing your time and things like that. Like I'll read a book sometimes. Like if I'm not in the headspace for it. And I'm reading the first chapter like 15 times because I literally don't know what's happened and I've had to read it. Like at some point it's not fun. Do you know what I mean? You shouldn't be forcing yourself to read if it's not fun. Like, you know, a thousand percent. This is also fascinating to me on the other spectrum where I'm just like, hold up. So if you barely started reading when you're getting back into the writing, Mm -hmm. I can't believe this is all from you bottled up and flowing out afterwards. So was there any like, writing retreat or writing workshop, like even if it's one weekend, like anything that might have positively influenced or impacted the way you string together your words, any like technique or even craft book that you feel like might've been great at giving you critiques that you're like, oh shoot, okay, I'm going to do this from now on. 
Yeah. I mean, honestly, and I know I'm, <laughs> I wish that I had something and I'm so sorry I don't, but like, I was like, genuinely, I didn't in that time period from not writing, like from starting to write and then starting to get an agent. Like I didn't even have a single friend. Like I'm going to be straight up honest with you. I had my, my husband who was like, you know, my, my partner at the time. Um, and, and I didn't have friends and I didn't have anybody. And it was really just me like writing diary entries. That's basically wow. what it was. And I think it was just a lot of bottled up stuff. Um, I will say like, I'm, I've always been drawn to kind of like lyrical sort of poetic feels of like even films and stuff. Like I like a lot of like French and like Turkish films oh. and, and shows. And I've, and so I don't know if that's had an influence. And when I was younger, I really liked Jane Austen. So I don't know if that plays a part in like, I like language to feel a little bit more kind of like it's, painting a picture rather than just telling a story does that, does that make sense interesting okay all right i also want to get into uh right now i know you have your book coming out harley in the sky which by the way gorgeous cover that i was sent the arc beautiful right now we are talking to each other in february mid-february by the time your podcast episodes releases on march 19th your book is aimed to release on march 10th this is hitting listeners about a week after your book releases how are you feeling right now let's talk about that are you is it nerves you've published multiple books already as somebody who is not a debut author are you still feeling those nerves and can we talk about that i want to hear yeah. like where you are how you're feeling yeah, I'm very excited. I mean, by the time anybody's listening to this, I'm just a blob at the floor. Like that's <laughs> that's where I am right now. Um, and I, I do, I get, I still get excited. I still get, um, you know, when you see the cover for the first time, there's still just like that kind of like, I don't know, like childhood, like, oh my God, it's real. Um, and yeah, I just got finished copies arrived today in the mail. So I've just seen oh like, um, you know, kind of like the naked hardback and the oh my foil gosh, on the spine. Congratulations. And, yeah. <laughs> and it's still it's it's just this very surreal like I still look at it and just think like who is letting me do this like I have no (laughs) idea but I'm very grateful very 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 grateful you are way too humble Um, oh my gosh yeah it's it's just honestly it's like a it's a lot of excitement it's a lot of excitement and trying to keep myself busy as well because I have been on deadline for my other book and I think that helps me because if I'm not working on anything I sit and I stress about everything like my anxiety goes like always skyrockets and I'm just thinking about all the like what what if this happens and what if this happens and like oh no have I done enough (laughs) and like um and that's never a good thing so um yeah I keep myself busy um, and then just try to stay in that like happy bubble of excitement. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's I'm so excited for you. Are you feeling like just looking back on everything you've written? Do you notice how your writing has evolved, how it's changed? I, I feel like so. The very first book I wrote was called Starfish, and it was yeah. about like a, you know emotional abuse and um, having anxiety and, and all this like kind of heavy stuff. And it was very it was dark and it, it was. Um, very much like probably the, that was the closest thing to like a diary entry that there will be. Um, and I think as time's gone on, I've kind of um, closed, not, not closed up a little cause I'm still honest, but I think I've um, kind of made it slightly more abstract, I guess, if, if that makes sense. Um, and kind of maybe not put as much of myself in one book and kind of like spread it across. And, and also I think like, when I wrote my first book, I think I was still in kind of that headspace of just like, being terrified of like disappointing people. Do you know what I mean? And being yeah. so scared of like letting people down or, or you know, I, I don't want anybody to be mad at me ever kind of thing. And I, and I still have that. I'm still working on that. Um, but I think as my books have gone on, like you can almost tell the characters get a little messier. They get a little messier. And like, 
I'm trying to show a side of like, you can be messy and you can be sorry and be trying your hardest though. And that's okay. Like, I don't think, you know, the punishment doesn't come because you're messy. The punishment comes if you're like, I'm messy and I don't give a crap. And who cares if it hurts you? Like that's, that's not okay. But if you're trying your hardest, even if you're making missteps, like, I guess I'm trying to like almost, um, show that that's okay. And that it's very, very normal. Yeah. And like letting those characters have that without judgment. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, because I think I'm always judging myself so critically and so harshly that I'm like, no, I want these characters to have a shot at like a healthy life and a yes. healthy, and I know they're not real, but you know, no, it's like, I get that. Yeah. But also I just want to also share, because I'm going to read you, read you a comment that one of our listeners shared about you and your work and that the care and heart that you put into your work, it, obviously shows on how it impacts readers. And I, I just need to share with you, uh, Gayatri Varma, she wrote, oh my God, I just needed to say that her book, Summer Bird Blue, helped me cope with my grief. I ordered the book as I came home from my grandma's funeral. It was the most random thing I ever did, but that book helped me process and cope my grief and is so, so, so special to me. So I just want to let you know, you are impacting people just from the heart and the care that you do with your work. It truly shows like when you go through and fine tooth combing everything, look at like the results. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. That's really nice. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm happy that I had a chance to share that with you. Okay. So now I think this is something I don't talk about enough with authors and guests on the podcast. And I would love to with you is being an author of multiple books I hear more and more with like, you know, people that I've hung out with from the ones I've had conversations with on the show and I hang out with them in private outside. I didn't realize the journey almost gets even harder. Um, yeah. I always thought it was just super hard just to get the agent and then, you know, get your first book and then it kind of gets easier. But no, I'm wrong. I heard that it's actually uh, opposite. Majority of the times, a lot of our community, they love writing. A lot of them want to publish books, but also there's a lot who have already published books. Can you share dealing with deadlines, dealing with yeah. the reality of like you were saying, like, oh, is this going to be good enough? Um, yeah. And like story ideas where for me, I would personally, you know, if I were in, your, in like, you know, your shoes, I'd be scared. Like, oh, my God, am I going to run out of ideas? You know, like, uh, what if I yeah. only have that one story or, or only hmm. two stories? What if I don't have there's also contracts and you yeah. have to meet the deadlines or you have to churn out. I hear like some people like sign on like three to four book deals, even though it doesn't have to be but part one, part two, part three. They just have to produce. So can we talk about all of that? I think that would be really helpful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I want to start off by saying too, like, I think, I think what are like the hardest things when you're first starting off and you get that first book and then you, you have like other ones to follow is that you're not really prepared. I feel like as a writer, when you first get the first one published, you're like a scarecrow from like Wizard of Oz, right? And like everything's on display because you're just so used to writing in the corner of your room and there's no judgments. There's nobody there. There's no noise. It's just you. So you just like bare your heart and you're like, oh, look, this is my stuff. And then I think then you realize like the reality sets in and you realize like you're not just a writer anymore. You're an author. And that mm. comes with other things. You Now, not only do you have like reviews and you have like outside things, but you're also dealing with like, you know, deadlines and you know lots of different criticism from different angles some some really helpful some not so helpful do you know what i mean yeah. and you have to almost turn yourself into like a tin man you have to have that armor on because it's very hard and authors this is something i mean 
I'm only speaking from my experience. So maybe like the ones who get like the massive deals, maybe they are media trained, but I think the average writer and definitely in my case, we're not media trained. You know what I mean? Nobody pulled us aside and was like, this is how you talk to people. This is, you know what you do. Don't respond to this. Like nobody says that. Like, so we are literally just thrown into the deep end and then, and I'm not complaining. Obviously I love this job and it's not a complaint. It's just, I'm just trying to share like the reality and you don't have the experience to necessarily like deal with all this. And it can feel like a lot and it takes a toll on your writing because all this stuff, it's noise. It's noise that's getting in your head. It's affecting you. And sometimes it's very difficult because you go into it. I think anybody who starts to be a writer has to be able to take criticism, right? Because yeah. you know that, you know, you're going to have an agent, editors, etc. You have to have that thick skin. But I don't think you're prepared for the fact that it's not, that's not where it ends. Like your thick skin needs to expand to like the whole world. You know what I mean? Mm, um, and that yes. can be very, very difficult because now you're trying to like piece apart, like what's helpful criticism and what's not like, yes, you're going to listen to your editor, but what about these other people saying you use too many M dashes, for example? And that's just like a small, do you see what I'm saying? And that yes. gets in your head. And then you're sitting there thinking like, is, is this wrong? Am I doing it wrong? Like, um, and, and the fact is too, you can't please everybody. Like, even if, if you set out to try to write the perfect book, which doesn't exist, but let's just pretend like, you know, that you are, and you try to write that, I guarantee you what's going to happen is people are going to be like, that book's really boring and unrelatable. Nobody gets it because it makes sense to nobody because there's no such thing as a perfect book for everybody. And so I think it's like this tricky thing of you have to learn that. And so then with like second, you know, third, you know, fourth, whatever book, it's like you have to almost harden yourself. And then so now you're going into it from like a totally different, you've got your armor on, you're in a different headspace. And it's different. It's like every book you have to almost like relearn how to be a published author again, if that yes, makes sense. Cause yes. it's, um, and it can, it can be kind of a challenge. It can be tricky. It can be confusing. Um, that's one of the reasons that I left Twitter. Cause I was like, I'm not handling this well. Like mm-hmm. I think I just need to prioritize and, and yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I would say like, that's kind of like the, the biggest thing that I've like adjusted to. And I think, expectations change because I, I feel like after you've published you know more than one book even even if you've published one right there's like a curtain that gets lifted on the reality of what publishing looks like behind the scenes mm. and sometimes you don't even learn everything with the first book like I'm on book three and I'm still seeing like more and more and be like oh that's how that works oh that's how that works because it's a little bit of a mystery like so they're not always very forthcoming about like mm. um you know, this is how things run. And this is why you've only been given this much money. And this is why this person's been getting, you know what I mean? They don't tell you that. So you're just sort of sitting there like flailing and being like, I think I know what's going on. And really you have no idea. (laughs) So, and I think by like, you know, multiple books, I think you sort of have like a, maybe a better, a, a broader understanding, maybe not better, but a broader understanding of how you know, there's different moving parts in, in this machine of publishing and, um, and they don't always line up the exact same way with every single book. Um, and yeah, it kind of teaches you, I guess I'm trying to, I think a lot of people end up kind of like, uh, maybe disillusioned to like it and, and, and I'm not faulting them because I totally understand why I get it completely. And I think part of my kind of big thing is like, I'm trying really hard to maintain that bubble of excitement because I worry that if I let myself feel that too much you know, or get too disheartened, like that'll affect my writing. And I don't want that to happen. So for, for me, I'm like, do you know what, let me just focus on what I can control. And for me, that's the writing, that's the words. So if I focus on that and, you know, let go of the rest I and mean, whatever happens, happens, I'm trying my best. I'm doing my best, whatever I can. And the rest is out of my hands, you know? Yes, totally get that. That's a really hard, fine line to try and maintain, protect your creative space and really just be the artist that you're meant to be. So here's the thing, because I am learning more and more 
from having conversations that like, you know how you mentioned, like, you know, there's different people get different budgets and stuff like that. I don't think I was aware of that. There's almost like more marketing push, more money to help with the marketing push behind those authors that publishers find are like, quote unquote, proven to bring in a lot of sales. It's really business oriented where it's like, what's the ROI, like the return on investment in this, right? Yeah. I wonder if there's that pressure for authors who, again, are not in like that big multi-selling to movies, adapting, la, 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 like all that stuff. There's got to be that pressure, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. The pressure, honestly, the pressure is getting to be able to write another book after that, because that's the, the reality is if your book doesn't sell... I mean, not everybody is going to get another deal afterwards because now you have a sales history that they use that goes against you. You know what I mean? If it's not good. So that's what's at stake then is like, if you don't perform as well, then there is no next book, no next opportunity. Almost that's what you feel like. That's what you feel like. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not because it's not going to be like a set in stone for everybody. And obviously there's ways I think, you know, some people use pen names and they can get around it and stuff. But so it's it's different. But but your sales history, the thing is, whatever name you write under your sales history follows you forever. Like that's just how that works. Um, and so that can be very terrifying. And And I think as authors, because we don't always see everything that's going on behind the scenes because there's again so many moving parts and like you might see one book that's getting like splashy you know massive advertisements and stuff like that but maybe another book's getting like pushed really hard in libraries which is is not something you want to turn your nose up at that's amazing libraries are fantastic um so there's like different ways but you might not be seeing it as much um and so you do have those worries and you know some books maybe just don't get the promo and then they kind of figure it out like i guess as time goes on it is a challenge, but like, I guess that's one of those things for me that I'm like, do you know what? That's out of my control. It's not something that I can change or do. So there's no point for me personally. I feel like I can't worry about that because it affects my writing. Do you know what I mean? Totally get so, that. So let me, so okay. I'm like, yeah. So, so then let me jump in here about like a scenario, like maybe, mm-hmm. cause I know that you take care of yourself by not worrying about that to protect your artistry, but have you heard like overall, just curiosity, if let's say somebody's second book didn't hit the sales as well. So then for their third book that they're already in contract for to produce gets less of a budget for marketing, then how much like it's almost like it falls so much on the author to then promote from their own pocket on Instagram. Because yeah. I've seen a lot of authors yeah. do a really good job with that, like really promoting their brand as a person and their brand tied in with their books. But they're like footing out fees for bookmarks, for pins, for giveaways, like all those things. And they're mailing it out out of pocket, I'm assuming as well. Do you have any thoughts on that? Although I know you're protecting your artistry and you want to leave yourself out of it. But like, I feel like that's inevitable for quite a lot of authors, like where they do bump yeah, into definitely. that. Definitely. Yeah. And and I want to say too, like, even though I'm saying that I'm trying to like, um, you know, focus on, you know, the words and stuff, like, I'm not saying that that's not affecting, you know what I mean? Because especially yeah. people who are counting on this financially, I mean, that's not something that you could just shut off and be like, I'm not going to think about it. So it's not like that. It's just that I'm trying to like, I'm not, it's not always working, but I'm trying to for my mental health. And I think the tricky thing too, is I would say most authors are so grateful to be in the position where they get to write. You know, we were talking about like cultural things about like, you know, not wanting to talk about not wanting to rock the boat. You know what I mean? Mm. And, and I think for authors, sometimes it's like, you don't want to rock the boat because yeah. you don't know, like, what's going to get back and get you in trouble. Like if you put your foot in your mouth, you know what I mean? Cause you yeah. said something or rub something the wrong way. And it is a fear because you're like how I want to be transparent. I want to be honest, but at the same time, I don't want to lose my job. Yeah. And there's like this tricky line of like, how much can I say without offending somebody that's 
higher up and more powerful than me. I mean, when you're talking about like, you know, paying for all the extra stuff that it does, a lot of the promo ends up getting landed on like, I guess, because if you feel like you're not getting a massive amount of promo, for example, you feel like, okay, now I've got to do as much as I can to help push this book. And you start shelling out for bookmarks, for book plates, for, you know, pre-order goodies. And, and I've done it and I've paid it myself and I've paid shipping and I'm international. So I, ha- I have to open oh up internationally. Gosh. And mm. it is a fortune. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like it is a lot of money. And one of, one of the books I did pins not realizing how much more that costs than flat pack, um, items. And it, it like tripled the shipping costs. Like, and I had a heart attack. I got to the post office. I was like, Oh my gosh. And that's all out of pocket. You know what I mean? And you know, some people don't realize that. And, and I want to stress too, that like, if you're a writer and you're thinking about doing it, you do not have to do that. Like, and, and because in my experience, and like, I can only speak from experience, obviously my own, um, I don't think it made that much of a difference. I'll be honest. It was almost more of a thank you to like your really dedicated readers. Cause that's the people who kind of do the pre-orders and stuff. And I feel like it was a way of thanking them, but it did not have, and I think the people who sent it in were people who were going to buy the book anyway. And that makes it very tricky because I really want to thank them. Like I want to do something nice that, you know, shows them that I care, but like it is a big bill <laughs> and not every author can afford it. And it's that simple. And so it's kind of like, are we creating our own expectations for each other? That is like, not even, are we being unrealistic and like putting pressure on each other? And so I think about that nowadays. And I think about like, should we all be scaling back for the sake of like, let's take it easy on ourselves. But it's, it's hard because you do, you want your book, it's your, you know, your book baby, you want it to do well, but, and it is, it's, it's tricky and it's, it's unfair obviously because everybody has different circumstances and not everybody can do the same kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of at a place now where I've, I've had the kind of stuff made, but I'm like, do you know what? I'll just take it with me when I do events and hand it out for free. And then mm. at least I'm, I'm able to thank people in a way that isn't, you know, hurting my bank account quite so right. much. So let me ask you if you can share a range of how much that was with the postage, with the ordering of the pins that you, all the stuff that you did on your own that you ended up not seeing really much of a difference in acquiring new readers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think like roundabout, I would say like with shipping and with all the things being made and everything, I mean, I think easily that was like a grand per book. I mean, if if I'm thinking about it, because it's it's international shipping as well. So if you get like 250 pre-orders, that's 250, you know, um, I don't know what is like five pound packages that you're setting out. And that's not even the cost of having all the stuff made. You know what I mean? Oh my gosh. Uh, It's not cheap. It's, it's not cheap at all. Uh, and like, I know people don't like talking about money and I get it. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. No, but it's and a like, necessary you know? thing we have to talk about just for, like, because yeah. this is also for people. I mean, it's interesting where it's like, okay, maybe like for the better of the whole community where it's like, okay, maybe we'll just scale back and just like, like shoot too high, like financially, because it's going to yeah. like really uh, just sets a yeah. unrealistic expectation. But at the same time, like, what if there are writers, for example, like I've met people who still have day jobs or who mm-hmm. just left a corporate job and saved enough money for a really long runway. They worked 20 20 years in corporate or as a lawyer, as a doctor, now they finally have the time to focus on their writing and they do maybe have a little bit of money to shell out. So it's good for those people to hear how much realistically to expect approximately if they were to do something like a pin or a bookmark or something. And it's good to know thing that's like a flat that you can mail flat rather. Yeah, I would say, yeah, flat is definitely that was uh, that was a mistake on my part. No, no, but I get it because I see the pins and they're so fun. But like maybe Um, like stickers would be good because it's flat, right? It's interesting to hear realistically finances because not enough people talk about it what mm. to expect. And also for those who are unable to, it's almost like a reassurance, like, well, 
At least I don't got to worry and stress about saving up for that because I'm not going to do it because I think that's unrealistic and I'd rather yeah. have that and money go into my rent. Because I feel like somebody is probably going to be like, she spent how much on that? Like, you know, you can get pins cheaper. And I'm like, probably, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Don't judge but you me. know what? But don't. I yeah. And that's best. the thing. You were doing your best with your research. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I totally get that. And really, it's I would say it's a lot on the postage because international when I have yeah. listeners where we just do fun giveaways and to mail them books just for fun, you know, just to like make them feel happy with a new new title in their TBR and their to be read list. We have people from international. I'm like, wait, how much? It's forty six dollars to mail something yeah. to where? It's ridiculous. I know because I haven't had American candy for my family in forever. They won't yeah, ship it anymore. Dude, <laughs> yeah, like, I know, right? Like, you go buy it it's yourself. crazy. And it was bare, it was just like one <laughs> light book that wasn't even hard copy. So then I bought a brand new book online that it does international shipping to just yeah. ship directly. And that would be cheaper than mail, you know, and it's just crazy. And I was like thinking, how do international authors do this? Like if they were to send stuff. So it's, it's so good to hear realistically, like that is something to think about. And we do, again, we have international listeners. So at least now, you know, a little bit of what you're getting into. So you can yeah. fully prepare yourself a little bit more. Yeah. I feel like they should take the pressure. Like, don't feel like you have to do it. Do it only if you want to no judgment either way. And I think also then like hindsight for me, for how much that cost. Like, I also think a lot now of like how many books could I have bought and donated to like libraries? Do you know what I mean? With that, right. like, and I, I think about that a lot. And I think like, would that have been more like a better thing to like, just go around and like buy like libraries that don't have like a lot of funding and like eat, buy them each a copy or, you know what I mean? Like, would right. that have been like a better use of, I don't know. It's like, a, but you just have to decide what's best for you and how, what, what you're comfortable. And you know what I mean? That's fine. There's oh my no, gosh. That yeah. was some helpful real talk. Let me tell you, Akemi, thank you so much. <laughs> Seriously. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm going to weave back real quick into Harley in the Sky. Can you give us a snapshot through your own words about what this story is about and also get into the inspiration of it? I would love for listeners to hear. Yeah. So, so Harley in the Sky is about a teen who dreams of being a trapeze artist and her parents want her to go to university. They don't think being in the circus is like a, a great career path. Um, even though they actually run a circus, they just think that she should have an education first and foremost. And she doesn't agree. Um, and so she ends up running away to join a rival circus company. Um, and so it's kind of about you know, her kind of facing the consequences of that, of, of kind of betraying her family and also coming to terms with, um, you know, the juggle of following your dreams and also like, you know, nurturing and listening to the people who love you. And it's like that balance of like, you know, um, I guess like how to, how to manage that. Um, I'm really terrible with elevator pictures. I'm no, sorry. No, no, don't even worry. I love this. No, this is perfect. So this yeah. was inspired. Was it from any real life experiences, any story that you came across and you're like, oh, wow, I need to flourish on this seedling of an idea. Where did that come from? Yeah, there was like kind of like two parts to it. So the first one is that the first two books I wrote, the first one was about abuse and the second one was about grief. And so they were very, very heavy. And I think mentally and emotionally, I was like, I need to recharge a little bit and write something just a little bit lighter. It didn't have to be super, you know, um, fluffy, happy, you know, uh, a rom-com or thing. Cause maybe that's not my style, even though it's great for other people. Don't get me wrong. But, um, but I think for me, I just needed to have something a little bit, not so heavy. Um, and I thought like, what's something that I love that brings me joy. And for me, that was the circus. So I was like, I combined something that I really, really love that makes me happy with kind of my normal kind of hits of, uh, mental health and complicated families and stuff like that. And the inspiration, I guess, for the mental health side of it was very much, um, what it felt like growing up to have, uh, 
like things with my mental health for me personally, when I was growing up, I felt very, I was either chasing this like unrealistic romanticized idea of happiness or, and then just crashing into like, it was like one or the other. And it was like, I, I felt like almost like I had to be happy. And the way to be happy was to have like all this, like, you know, these big dreams and to have these accomplishments and stuff. And it just wasn't realistic all the time. And I think, and then obviously you're going to get disappointed. And then instead of just tripping, like I would fall, I would plummet into like a void. Um, and it was just back and forth, back and forth. And I didn't have the terminology for that. I didn't have like words for that. Um, and, you know, I've said I've been struggling with anxiety and stuff as well. Um, and it wasn't until I went to therapy that I got the terminology to be able to understand what I have, um, how to cope, like, you know, treatment options, stuff like that. Um, and so when I was younger and I didn't have any of that, like, I think a lot about that. Like, you know, I was basically somebody who had mental illnesses who didn't have the language for them, who was just kind of like trucking along, um, stumbling through it. And I think a lot about how much, um, kind of nowadays people really put an importance on labels. And I think they're fantastic for a lot of people. But I think for me at the end of the day, what they're for is for your, you know, your therapist or your doctor to help you with a treatment plan or, and for you to understand yourself so that you can cope better. They're not for other people to like box you into a thing being like, you know, this is what you are and this is what it's supposed to look like. Like that's not how the label is supposed to work. Um, and I think there's like such a focus on it nowadays too, that like, if you don't have a label, it's almost like you're not allowed to talk about mental health. And I think that's really wrong because the fact is like people are, you know, they have mental illnesses before they're diagnosed. That's the whole way that it works. You know, the chicken, and the egg. that's how it works. So it's not the diagnosis that suddenly validates you. And I think it's treated like that sometimes. And so I wanted to write a book about what that feels like to be going through that and not having the diagnosis and not having any intention of having it because I want people to feel like they've been represented in that way too. That's like really important to me. Mm, wow. Okay. This must've been a really emotionally, um, not the easiest book to write, I'm assuming. So what was the biggest challenge for you when writing this book, you know, when you did and trying to get that point across um, and also making it so that it's not coming off like you're preaching, but allowing people yeah, to live yeah. through it. I think that is such a difficult thing to balance. Yeah, it definitely is. Cause I, I, I don't want it to feel, yeah. Like you're giving them like some kind of lesson, you know what I mean? I'm yeah, not writing yeah. like a sociology report. Like I'm, right, right, right. I'm just trying to show, I guess a snapshot of somebody else's life. And I think I always think of it as like, I'm trying to build a bridge for people to understand and for people to, to be like, Oh, that's exactly what I went through. Like, that's what it feels like. Um, and yeah. And I think, I think my thing's always just been to write like as honestly as I possibly can. Like I don't write it as like, you know, I'm, I'm giving like a lecture. I just write it as like, what did it feel like at that moment in time? And like, I think about that and I put that in the kind of forefront of my mind. And so, yeah, I think mm. it's just almost like recapping like the emotions that I went through when I was kind of struggling through that and also kind of expressing, like showing that people can be okay. Like you can live differently. People can have different experiences and one's not more right than the other. Yes. Like, we should be understanding like it's not, you know, just because you have, you know, one type of mental illness, right? Mm -hmm. You could have a hundred people who all experience that differently, you know? And I, I want, I wanted to get that across and to show like, there's not, you know, only, only one way to do this. Like we can all have different life experiences, all be right, all get along, all see each other for, you know, what we are, which is people who are struggling, but trying our best, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing this work and getting this out here I do believe we need more books like yours out here. 
like we were talking about at the very top of the conversation, which is just feeling less alone and to know that we are not yeah. the only ones going through those struggles and you're actually making changes in the world and impacting people with your stories it's getting into people's hands and kind of learning how to cope and learning what possibilities are out there what's available and ways of learning how to find their voice the way your characters find their voice so thank you for doing that work you are incredible if you mind can i squeeze in Two, three more quick questions to wrap this yeah, up. Is that okay? Amazing. You're, yeah, no problem. You are awesome. Um, so what uh, are some small manageable steps you would advise to writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? I would say, so, I mean, obviously you should have like, write your goals down, see what they are. But if, if, if we're talking about, you know, just getting words written down, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. just take five minutes a day and that's all just to sit in front of the computer and even if you only write one word, you've got one word more, you know what I mean? And like, and the thing is like, so you give yourself five minutes, right? But if the words start coming, give yourself another five minutes, you know, give yourself another, and you can, you can build on that. You know what I mean? But, but then you don't feel so bad if you only had the five minutes and you're like, Oh, my five minutes is up. Like you've done something today. You know, you're, you're good. Um, and I think sometimes like that, like little, little move is, is, is massive sometimes. Like, you know, they say like when you're in a straight line, if you tilt it a little bit, you don't see the effects right away. Right. Cause it's only tilted a tiny bit, but eventually there, it's a big difference. And I feel like that's kind of, if you're stuck in a rut, just tilt it the tiniest little bit and see, see how that changes, you know, like, you know, a couple months down the line. Oh, I love that. Okay. The next question is something that we've had listeners asking and actually asking these questions in our private Facebook group. I would love to know because, again, we have several moms in our community. There are Mm -hmm. some who are brand new moms with newborn babies. Others who, again, have kids preschool to middle school, high school. Are you at that stage where you can tell your kids? I know they're five and three. We talked about this a little bit earlier. No matter what, you're like stuffing a sandwich in your face. Like everything is so busy and you're trying to write at the same time. But are they yet at that stage where they understand like this is mommy's time or not yet? Oh, no way. No No way. (laughs) My my five-year-old has just, she started school in in the fall. So she's in school now during the day, but my three-year-old's obviously with me. And if I try to write during the day, he's literally, I mean, half, this is probably going to make it weird that you're reading books and thinking like, this is what's going on behind the scenes. <laughs> I love but he's it. literally in my office chair, half on my shoulders, like stringing my hair through his toes. Cause he <gasps> thinks that's hilarious right now. He's so gross. <laughs> and that's, that's just my life. And rubbing, rubbing my hair into his boogers, thinking it's funny. Being like, I wipe boogers on you, mom. Like <laughs> he's so cute. Oh yeah. my gosh. Uh. Oh, no, that's inspiring to hear this. And I just love, I love that image of seeing you doing that as a as a writer and also being a mom at the same time and having a foot in your hair with boogers like while you're writing yeah. i think that's so it makes you so human and my gosh like i would always want to support an author like that my gosh just to hear the hustle that she has to go through are you kidding it's a lot of work he's got this thing too like when i've got a word document up you know how like you get the squiggles the blue for grammar yes, and the red yes. for he's got this thing and i don't know where it came from but if he sees blue he's like oh there's blue i love you and if it's red he's like oh i don't love you and so and i feel like he's such a troll because he'll come in and like something spelled wrong he's like oh don't love you today oh my gosh he's so funny get out of my office (laughs) stop judging me jeez oh my god your kid your babies are smart can you remember like when they were newborns how the hell you were able to write because i i mean especially for those who have newborns right now and are really like freaking out about not being able to make it through deadlines and wanting to submit certain things by certain times try to get the chance of getting a literary agent or like entering a contest for their writing or their second book 
Yeah. I mean, I remember it was just like a constant juggle. And I remember like we couldn't afford like, you know, they have those fancy bouncers that bounce themselves. Yes. We couldn't afford that one. So we had the, we had the one that you had to use your foot to bounce the bouncer. And I remember when my son was like a baby, that was the only way you could get him to nap. And so I would have him in the bouncer with my foot and then the laptop on my legs. And the whole time I was writing a book, it was like jiggling around. Oh my like, gosh. My legs are you serious? And I was getting leg cramps. Yeah, it was awful. Um, and that's just the stuff that I guess you do. And I think, um, but the other, like the big thing, and I, I just want to shout this like so much because I wish people just understood this and stopped judging. But like you have to prioritize, right? Don't worry if your house is a mess. It is okay. Yes. Like, that could take a backseat. When your kids are really little, like it's not the end of the world if you don't get to the vacuuming. Like if you yes, know what I mean, if it just take an extra day. Like yeah. you're all right. You're all right. If yeah, you just make sure everyone's down, fed. As long as they don't starve yes, to death, exactly. you're good. It's really you're okay. not getting some horrible virus because you're not, you know what I mean? Like keep everybody healthy and fed and Genuinely, if it's nighttime, you've got the kids in bed and you might have a couple hours and your choices are do the dishes or write your chapter, just go write your chapter. You're all right. (laughs) Don't feel bad about it. Thank you for that. What books that really ripped your heart open or opened your mind, or even like you mentioned, you watch films and TV shows and Mm -hmm. things that really inspire you. Or if you did come across a craft book that maybe a buddy recommended to you, if there's anything that you can share recommend to our listeners that we could put up on your show notes page to link to so that they could check out as well. Do you know what I read that's actually a lot easier for me is graphic novels. And I found that's a lot. It's a quicker read. It's visual storytelling. I like superheroes and stuff, so I'm okay with that. Yeah. But I know like, if people don't, they just think it's like superheroes. But it's so much more different stories than just the superheroes. Um, there's this one called Nimona. I'm having like a total blank in my brain right now because I can't remember the author. And I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but it is one of my favorite books of all time, which makes this worse that I can't remember what their name is. <laughs> it's amazing. It's so funny. She's like an apprentice wizard for this bad wizard. And it's just hilarious. Like, and it's like just really simple, like art. Um, and so it's like really like quick to read, but it's so funny. I love that one. There's another one called uh, Space Boy. And that one's like really cute too. It's about like uh, this girl, she's in in space with her family and they're... Um, uh, her dad ends up getting laid off, so they have to send them back to Earth. But because they put them in the pods, they're asleep for, you know, um, over a decade. Uh, so when she wakes up again, her best friend's all grown up and like she's having to go to this school on Earth and doesn't know anybody. And it's oh, it's just so good. Oh, Noelle Stevenson. That's her name. Oh, OK. For the for the Nimona. Nimona? OK, done. <laughs> yeah. Noelle Stevenson. I love that. It just popped yeah. up. I love that. OK, that is so yeah. helpful. All right. I know you're not really on social media. I know Twitter is not active right now, but you are on Instagram or not as much. Yeah, I use my Instagram. Yeah, I do. I'm not always great about posting, but I I put stories up and stuff. So yeah, I'm much better with that. (laughs) Okay. So then you know what? Can you please share Instagram? And if there's anything else, like even your website, if there's important information you post up there, whether it's like upcoming tours, things like that, let everyone know where they can find you. Yeah. So I'm at Instagram at Akemi Don Bowman. And my website is www.akemidonbowman.com. So okay. pretty, pretty smart. <laughs> All righty, Akemi. Thank you so much and have a good night. Thank you so much you for your time. Well. This was the coolest. Thank you so Dude, much. This is so much fun. I'm so happy we got to know each other and you are just as wonderful and lovely as everyone said you would be. So thank you so much for this. Oh, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye. <laughs> bye. And that wraps up my conversation with Akemi Don Bowman. Akemi, thank you so much for such a beautiful conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed your company and am thrilled we got to do this. 
Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and tuning in as always. Please be sure to stop by and say hi to Akemi on Instagram at Akemi Don Bowman. And be sure to also catch Akemi's Insta Story Takeover at Instagram.com slash 88 Cups of Tea. To download her writing prompt and to find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout her entire conversation, head on over to Akemi's show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash Akemi dash Dawn dash Bowman. We're publishing a brand new article this Thursday over on 88cupsoftea.com. So if you'd love to consume more of our content, head over to our website for all of our articles and essays. Please take good care of yourself. I'll catch you in the next episode.